Hi, this is Jovi. This is Charlie. And you're listening to Bed Bed Crime Crime Stories. Stories. This is a weekly true crime podcast where we pour ourselves a drink and we take turns telling each other the stories that keep us up at night. That'll never get old. I'm sorry. And it's so funny because I know we've done it a million times, but every time. Yes, we have. Um, No, you have. Oh, no, I I have. No, you're right. You're right. I have. (laughs) But it's just like every time I hear it, that's the first thing that pops into my head. (laughs) I hear you. That's every week. (laughs) Yeah, I get it. I get it. So my apologize. My apologize. My My apologize. For being corny every every week so whatever as you guys could hear charlie is still in the middle middle of a monsoon yes if you <laughs> listen to last week's episode we are recording it the same night we're recording tonight's episode and mm-hmm. i'm getting like destroyed by thunder up mm-hmm. in y'all mm-hmm. so if you hear the rumbling it's not our tumblies <laughs> exactly it's, it's the thunder and yes, yes i said tumblies on purpose yes 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 then, you know, I have a speech problem, but it wasn't that time. <laughs> not that time. All the other times, maybe, but yes. not that time. Yes. Exactly. That's pretty much it. Okay. Yeah. Because we went through that whole. We did. We had like, if you want to know what's been going on with us, you can listen to the beginning of last week's episode and then just come back to this week's episode. Yes. Because that's yes. still what's going on with us. Yes. Nothing has changed within the last hour. <laughs> yes. Well, an exactly. hour for us, a week for you, but seven days for you. Yeah. You, you get it. You get it. It's all, all right, good, though, man. You guys have yeah. to understand. I think I talked about it on last week's episode, right? Where this is a amateur operation. Yes. yes, yes. We're just doing our best here. We're 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 doing our best podcast life. Mm-hmm. That's it. But with that being said, how about we jump into Charlie's bit crime story? And I am so excited to hear what she's doing. Because yes. she did text me and she's like, you are going to love my story. And I'm like, I wonder yes. what it is. So please, so Charlie, excited. tell us your bed crime story and what you're doing. Okay. So I know I've, I've said this before. There are times where it's just, I cannot think of something to write about. Like I just, I have no idea. I have no idea what I'm going to write about. I get very, like, I just kind of lose my way and I don't know what it is I'm going to write about. Mm-hmm. And I don't know where in my brain, all of a sudden last night, this popped into my head and I'm like, oh no, it's time. I'm telling <laughs> the story. It is time. And I know I've mentioned this person on the podcast before of saying I could talk for hours about this person. Mm-hmm. And <gasps> I'm so excited. I know what you think it is. And I don't think it's what you oh. think it is. <laughs> it's not Jonestown. No, I was thinking something else. But Okay, could... so maybe it is what you think it is. Yes, yes. <laughs> so I know I could say that I could talk for hours about this person, and that is true. I wrote 16 pages of notes for this episode. Ooh, yes. Yes. What is it? What and is tonight it? I am titling this episode Pop Star Ponzi, The Life and Crimes of Lewis J. Perlman. Yes! <laughs> yes! Oh my God. Oh my God. I am so, <laughs> I am so excited. This is going to be a long episode guys. Cause there's going to be a lot of sidebar nation and I am so fucking stoked. There's so much to talk about. There's oh so much God. to talk about and like oh personal God. stories to interject as well. And I'm so fucking excited. I never been so happy to hear. <laughs> I know. Okay. So my sources for this evening, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. an article 
from Vanity Fair, multiple articles from the Tampa Bay Times, formerly known as St. Petersburg Times, an article from the Hollywood Reporter, Mm -hmm. um, Wikipedia. Of course, yes. And the best documentary, in my opinion, (laughs) Boy Band Con, the Lou Perlman story from YouTube Originals, produced by one Lance Bass. (laughs) Yes, yes. That was, it literally is the best documentary. I was so excited. Okay. Oh my God. Okay. Let's do this. Let's do it. Okay. (laughs) Oh, I'm so excited. Okay. Louis J. Perlman was born June 19th, 1954 in Queens, New York to High Perlman, who ran a dry cleaning business and Rini Perlman, who was a school lunchroom aide and a homemaker. Mm-hmm. So according to childhood neighbors, Lou didn't fit in with the other kids in the neighborhood. So he grew up in the Mitchell Gardens apartments, which were um, six story brick apartment building in Flushing, Queens. And he had a reputation amongst his school aged neighbors of being like a tall tale teller. So he was very often lying about his life kind of lying to himself and then in turn believing all the lies that he was telling people about himself. And he would tell his school friends um, that his first cousin was Art Garfunkel, who is one, one half of the famous folk duo, Simon and Garfunkel. Um, But of course, because he was such a liar, nobody believed him. Nobody thought that Art Garfunkel was actually his cousin. Well, lo and behold, (laughs) Art Garfunkel was indeed Lou's first cousin. <laughs> and Lou had told everybody, if you don't believe, you know, show up to my bar mitzvah because he will be there. And he showed up as promised. Art Garfunkel was at uh, 13-year-old Lou Perlman's uh, bar mitzvah. So he kind of took this as his really, fr- like kind of the first lesson of his life that if out of a gigantic web of lies, one teeny tiny nugget can be proven, or you can provide proof that it's true, you can get away with anything and almost anyone will believe what you say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he would create these giant, of course, we'll get into it, right? But he would create these giant lies. And if he could just get you to believe a teeny tiny little morsel of it, or if a teeny tiny little morsel of it was true, he knew that he can get you to believe the whole thing. Uh And the reaction that his cousin Art Garfunkel received by coming to his bar mitzvah, and then by extension, the attention that he got for having a famous cousin inspired, you know, really kind of planted the seed in his interest in the music business. And then also this desire for fame and notoriety and being rich. Yeah. Um, So very early on in life, Lou became passionate about blimps. (laughs) So he had really one childhood friend. His name is Alan Gross. And Alan himself uh, loved the air machines. He loved blimps. And he showed Lou the view out of the Gross family apartment window that overlooked the Flushing Airport. And tethered there was the Goodyear blimp. So both Alan and Lou, like really developed this deep interest in airships and understanding how they work and just watching them. And, you know, that, that typical, like young child fascination with a thing, right. You get like obsessed with this interest that you have. Right. So as a young man, Alan went across the street to the airport and he asked to work with the men who worked with the blimp. 
and he brought Lou with him. And the two of them started kind of basically became like a gopher around the hangar for the guys who worked on the blimp. And they got to know them. And um, Alan actually got like student reporter credentials through school and was able to go up in the blimp as like a reporter, which I thought was kind of cute. But that's kind um, of awesome. Yeah, pretty cute just and saying. awesome. But yeah, so this is kind of where the like the seed for aviation was planted in Lou. Mm-hmm. So in 1974, Lou begins taking classes at Queens College, but never loses his passion for aviation. Um, in 1978, he's just 24 years old. He begins to correspond with a German business na- businessman named Theodore Wollenkemper, whose company builds some of the best blimps in the world. And now Wollenkemper is really impressed with Lou's enthusiasm for the industry and like his thirst for knowledge about how it all works. Mm-hmm. So he actually invites Lou to come to Germany and train at his facilities. Lou goes over, he's there for a couple of years. He comes back to the States in 1980 and he begins a company called Airship Enterprises Limited. And he hires Alan Gross on as his public relations manager. So now the two of them are working with, in the airship industry. Right, which they dreamt of when they were kids. Correct. This was like Mm -hmm. the dream for both of them. Yeah. So with this company, he was able to negotiate a contract with Jordash Jeans to rent out the blimp for promotional purposes. But the problem is that Lou owned exactly zero blimps. (laughs) He had the company, he had no blimps. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so he takes to purchasing the outer balloon skin so it's called the um the blimp envelope is what they Mm -hmm. call it so he purchases like that outer balloon skin from a company in california and he hires an aluminum contractor in new jersey to build the frame for it the blimp is assembled in new jersey and it was actually assembled at the naval base in lakehurst new jersey which is where the hindenburg disaster happened in 1937 so not not a great omen not a great idea for not a great the, idea <laughs> yeah not a great omen for the blimp you know like, all right <clears throat> so and there were problems from the beginning so the gold paint that jordash wanted the pimp to be painted in turned brown after several days in the sun and alan gross said it made the blimp look like a giant turd (laughs) which i thought was really funny (laughs) he's not wrong he's he's not not wrong wrong. i mean could you imagine a big giant brown blimp it would look like a giant turd legit yes exactly um and also on its inaugural flight it was october 8th 1980 the jordash blimp took off from lakehurst to make its way to new york harbor where it's going to be like circling this jordash party Uh But the blimp made it less than a mile before losing altitude and the pilot had to force a crash landing in a garbage dump. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So the crash makes national news and Lou blames the weight of the gold paint for the crash. Now, the airship community and uh, by extension, also Alan Gross himself, really think that there's something a little bit more nefarious at play. So quote, uh, Gross says, quote, Lou never intended to fly that blimp. He would have been arrested if it ever left that base. Basically, he never allowed, it wasn't flown the number of practice runs that it was required to have flown under federal law. Mm-hmm. So if he actually left the naval base, it wouldn't, he would have gotten arrested. It was right. Legal. Yeah. Right. So Lou and and his insurance company wind up going to court 
Seven years later, the New York jury awards Lou Pearlman $2.5 million in damages because he sued his insurance company. Oy vey. Oy vey. <laughs> so <clears throat> he moves into a penthouse apartment in Bayside, Queens. And it's when he's living there that Lou meets a Wall Street broker who traded in penny stocks. So penny stocks are stocks which are typically traded at about $5 per share or less. And most penny stocks you see are uh, from small companies, but tend to have a high rate of return, usually because of the risk that comes with these small shares. Mm -hmm. And some people see it kind of as like a get rich quick type of a situation. Mm -hmm. It's not exactly illegal, but it's also not exactly like best practice. So basically what I'm hearing is this is perfect for Lou Perlman. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it really just kind of fits the business model of what Lou Perlman's trying to do here. Yeah. So the broker that he meets proposes to Lou a way that he can return back to the blimp business. So he tells Lou, why don't you go public? So Lou starts a new company called Airship International, and he manages to raise $3 million in capital from a 1985 public offering. So he goes public, sells shares, and winds Mm -hmm. up earning $3 million off of this public offering. And he uses the $3 million to purchase a 13-year-old blimp from his buddy Volenkemper over in Germany. So, I mean, but it's legit though. He actually owns a blimp now. Mm-hmm. It's a functioning mm-hmm. blimp. It's old, but it's a blimp. Mm-hmm. So Lou quickly secures a promotional contract with McDonald's. And with this McDonald's blimp in the air for most of the year, he's now able to rent office space on Fifth Avenue in New York. So he's really trying to present himself now as a man of means he's using this money that he's making from these blimps to start flying himself around in a rented learjet and by 1989 he purchases a 6,000 square foot vacation home in an affluent neighborhood in orlando (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so speaking of orlando (laughs) (laughs) lou now decides to relocate his business so he takes airship international to florida in 1991 and it's once this move happens, he starts to get a large influx of new money. So he brings in new investors and new business partners. One of this new business partners that he meets is a 22-year-old British heir named Julian Bencher. Um, and Julian meets Lou when Lou purchases a replacement blimp from <laughs> a British company that Julian was trying to buy. So that's how they kind of got connected. Right. So Julian comes over, he tours the U.S. facilities of Airship International, and he looks into the financial state of the company, and Julian buys into the business, and he becomes its second largest shareholder. So now Lou has this business, and he has it separated into two different divisions. He has the publicly traded Airship International, Mm -hmm. and he has a rapidly growing private company that he calls Transcontinental Airlines. (laughs) So Transcontinental Airlines was an aircraft leasing business that Lou co-owned with Theodore Vollenkamper, okay? Transcon Air was said at the time to operate more than 49 aircraft, including 14 727s, and also said to have had an annual revenue of upwards of $78 million. Good Lord. Yeah. So now Airship International acquired four more blimps during this time. And he was able to lease them out to many large businesses in and around the Orlando area. Mm-hmm. So there was a blimp leased by SeaWorld, one by MetLife, one by Gulf Oil, and then other random businesses. Yeah, but bigger businesses. So like large contracts. Yeah, yeah. 
Correct. So, but to make, to raise money for the purchases, Lou, <laughs> Lou starts using this really like shady brokerage house out in Colorado, um, to do two additional public offerings of Airship International to raise more money. Mm-hmm. And he raises about $17 million selling stock of Airship International to investors. Now, this firm, this firm out in Colorado is what's known on Wall Street as a boiler room, meaning that it pushes high risk stock, which is usually overpriced for what it is, to investors that don't understand how it works. Mm-hmm. In 1993, not long after this $17 million influx of cash through these public offerings that it facilitated for Lou, the firm called Chatfield Dean and Company was fined $2.4 million by the National Association of Securities Dealers for defrauding its investors. <laughs> so again, also kind of on brand mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. knowing and working with Lou Perlman. Yep. All right. So now Lou tells the story years later. And now this is quite a notorious story for anybody who is a boy band fan and knows anything about Lou Pearlman. Yeah. Lou tells the story in later years about when he finally decides he's going to enter the music business. And he, he tells the story about it was the late eighties and one of his charter planes was rented to fly the new kids on the block to several concert stops. During this negotiation, he was told by the band's manager that the new kids grossed a hundred million dollars a year. And this (laughs) stuck with him, right? So during this part of the early 90s, Julian starts to note, Julian Venture starts to notice that Lou is not showing the same level of passion for the blimp biz as he used to. So he he says to Lou, he says, quote, Lou, what is your dream? What do you really want to do? And he said the music business. He wanted to start a group like New Kids. I said, well, then let's do it. You put up half, I'll put up half. Mm-hmm. So Julian Bencher, Lou Perlman, go halvesies. And they decide to go forth and boy band. <laughs> go so, forth and go boy forth band. And boy brand. Yeah. <laughs> so in 1992, Lou places an ad in the local newspaper and in the Florida Blue Sheets, which was a um, leaflet that would be circulated around specifically the greater Orlando area for musicians and entertainers. Hiring at Disney, hiring for Nickelodeon, hiring for Universal. That, so like performers would get these blue sheets. Yeah. And the ad... Um, he put out was for five young male singers to form a music group. So among the very first to reply was one Ms. Denise McLean, okay. whose uh, son, AJ, auditioned for Lou in his living room. So AJ McLean becomes the group's first signed member Woo-hoo. Um, back in 1992. So dozens of teenage boys audition. And eventually in January, 1993, Lou holds an open casting call at his blimp hangar in Kissimmee. Um, after multiple auditions of different combinations of people with AJ kind of at the center, um, on April 20th, 1993, Brian Littrell, Nick Carter, Kevin Richardson, and Howie Duro join AJ to become the Backstreet Boys. Woot, woot. Woohoo. <laughs> um, now Lou is the one who came up with the name Backstreet Boys. Right. So there is a flea market or was a flea market in Orlando called Backstreet Flea Market, which apparently was kind of like a cool hangout for the teens, for cool <laughs> teens in Orlando. Back in the day. Back in the day for the cool teens, they would hang out at the uh, Backstreet Flea Market. So that's kind of where that name came from. So when people like make fun of Backstreet Boys, that's why. And it you know, made sense. It made sense then. Okay. Yes. At the time. Not so much yes. now. Not, Not so, so much, much now. now. <laughs> Correct. So the rest is music history. And the rest is also like 
my history and Jovi's history Mm -hmm. and the reason why we're friends. And honestly, Mm -hmm. kind of technically the reason why this podcast even exists is because of big Papa and creating the Backstreet Boys. So, I mean, really, if it wasn't for big Papa and the five men, we wouldn't literally be sitting here today. So big ups to the Backstreet Boys and I guess by extension, even Louis J. Perlman. So he preaches to the group that they're all a family and he urges the boys to call him big Papa. Mm -hmm. Now, even though the Baxter boys would not find success in America until 1997, Lou really starts to kind of lose interest in his blimp biz. So, cause he's spending like all of his time working with the Baxter boys and working in the music industry and trying to push them to success. So airship international by extension winds up failing. The company posted a $2 million loss in 1992 and a $4 million loss in early 1994. And by late 1994, its stock had fallen to 13 cents a share down from $6 a share. So like a steep, steep drop. Um, Of the five blimps that it had owned, only one was still flying in late 1994. So the SeaWorld blimp was dismantled after the park did not renew its lease with Lou. Uh, another leased blimp um, or another blimp was leased to promote the Pink Floyd tour of that time, uh, but it was damaged in a windstorm. Another crashed in North Carolina and yet another of his blimps was on its way to the U.S. Open tennis tournament in September of 1994 and crashed into a Long Island man's front yard. That's... Which, God. It's gotta be the weirdest thing to find on your front lawn. You just think? Yeah. It's like, whoa, what was what yeah. is that a blimp? Is that a fucking like, blimp on my yard? For yeah. real. For like for real. imagine being like on the phone when this is happening and be like, hey bud, uh yeah. let me call you back. <laughs> call you back. There's, a, there's a there's a dead blimp in my front yard. Yeah, a blimp just crashed in my front yard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there was no cell phones at the time, so you couldn't snap a picture and text <laughs> it. This you is know. true. This is true. Mm. So the final blimp nail in the final blimp coffin happened in 1995 when the lease on Lou's last blimp expired. So that is the end of Blimp Town, mm-hmm. uh, which is another boy band. I'm going to call it <laughs> Blimp Town. Um, anyway, <clears throat> so Lou's investors were not actually that bothered by the failure of Airship International. And the reason why is because they were really excited about the music side of the business. Mm-hmm. So investors were really comforted, not only by seeing the boy bands thrive, right? Because by this, by this time, NSYNC had become a thing. And of course, Baxter boys are, you know, on this huge trajectory, they're comforted by this. And they're also comforted in knowing that transcontinental airlines is thriving and they were holding out for him to start turning that public so they can get this influx of money as investors because of now we're going to publicly trade transcontinent uh airlines because it's still private right um the airlines income grew steadily through the 90s almost every single business venture that lou took on becomes a subsidiary of transcon air so transcon air now becomes kind of like this parent company so Mm -hmm. the backstreet boys was were a subsidiary of transcon the Chippendales, because <laughs> he actually purchased a Chippendales franchise in 1996, uh, Transcontinental Records, Transcontinental Studios, and even Transcontinental Foods, which included franchises of TCBY Yogurt. Wow. That's a 90s reference. Yes, it um, is. And a small chain of NYPD pizzerias. Mm-hmm. Remember NYPD pizza? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So Lou would send his annual letters to Transcontinental Airline. Uh, shareholders and he would boast about how well the 
business was was doing right Mm -hmm. so the shareholders only owned a very small portion of stock in the company lou maintained that theodore volenkumper controlled most of it even more so than he did Mm -hmm. um and after years of working with lou julian venture was finally able to buy seven uh, seven percent stake in the company which is actually quite a lot compared to anything that anybody else held in transcon airlines Mm -hmm. So Julian actually starts to complain now to Lou that he's not receiving dividend checks on his Transcon stock. So Lou, of course, blames Vullenkemper. Of course. Of course. So Venture's like, fuck that noise, gets on a plane and flies to <laughs> Germany. So in 1998, he confronts Vullenkemper. So mm-hmm. he says to him, quote, or he says in an interview, quote, Vullenkemper says, What are you talking about? I said, Transcontinental Airlines. He said, What's Transcontinental Airlines got to do with me? I said, you own it. You own 82% of it. He starts laughing. I said, Transcon Air, 49 airplanes. He said, I have planes, but not this Transcon Air. Julian, this has nothing to do with me. I went cold inside. Everything I had believed for eight years was a lie. I didn't know what to do. Jesus Christ. There was no Transcontinental Airlines. (laughs) So transcontinental airlines only existed on paper (laughs) only Julian explains quote, but it was always so believable. There was always a plane or a helicopter there whenever he wanted. Mm -hmm. When we flew to LA on MGM grand air, Lou said the jet was one of his Mm -hmm. when he said he owned the plane. Well, how can you tell him he didn't? Right. 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 Exactly. Uh, thank you for flying me here but bullshit you own it like what are you supposed to fucking say right right so julian settles with lou and promises him not to publicly disparage him and he keeps everything a secret until after lou's death he knows it's smoke and mirrors and says nothing now i have a problem with it because i know all of the other crappy shit that comes after this Mm -hmm. and i think it's real shitty that this guy didn't say anything same but at the on the other hand playing here we go with the devil's advocate no to 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 lose the fuckhead here right Mm -hmm. like lose the shyster yes as shitty as it is that julian didn't say anything lou is the one who did all of this oh absolutely you know what i'm saying so yeah like should he have said something yeah probably but at the end of the day it all comes down to the fact that lou perlman was an asshole and uh, swindled people out of millions correct of correct so, yeah you know yeah fine so, your yeah. devil's advocate won this time thank you mm. okay <clears throat> so now our good friend alan gross who i actually really love if mm-hmm. you watch the if you watch the interview he's just like the sweet guy and i yes i, feel I agree him, man i really do I hug and he him. was literally lose only friend and it's heartbreaking what he did to him yep so alan gross has photos of a 747 painted with the transcontinental airlines insignia landing at laguardia airport now these photos that alan gross has are the same photos that lou had printed on the transcon air brochures that he would show to current and potential investors gross says in the interview quote look closer you notice you can't see the entire airplane you can't see the tail numbers you know why because that's where lou is holding his fingers it's a model it's a it's a model i built for him louis was using these fake pictures all the way back in the late 70s to try and raise money can you believe it people thought it was all real end quote that's fucking sad it is 
fucking awful sad and apparently he apparently apparently uh alan gross didn't know that he had done this and put these on the brochures until like much later yeah and it seems as though this model that he had built that alan gross had built built for him like as a gift like wrote transcontinental on the side of it and like gave it to him as a gift so he takes this model drives his ass over to LaGuardia mm-hmm. and stages these Polaroid pictures to make it look like an actual plane landing and taking off at LaGuardia. Yep. yep. What a fuck. Like what a fuck. I would uh, like honestly, I feel bad for Alan cuz he was literally kind of clueless. You know, he, was. he didn't he didn't know anything was going on until much after the fact. Cuz I'm sure if he knew that Lou had used his model plane and made it look real he would have done something about it you know yeah i just it breaks my heart because this poor alan guy he's just he was just being a friend Mm -hmm. and then this is what lou does to him yep all right so from pretty much the very beginning of lou's big successes in the music business cracks in the foundation already began to show Mm -hmm. and it really all started with brian literal of the backstreet boys who couldn't understand why he and the rest of the band were seeing so little income from their, their labors. Right. Mm -hmm. So at this point, um, this is about 1997, end of 1997. Yes. They haven't really, they've only just started to hit it big in America, but they had been going strong since 1993, Mm -hmm. nonstop touring European records, record sales through the roof. And they're Mm -hmm. seeing very, very little dough. Yeah. So Brian hires an attorney or a group of attorneys who calculate that while Lou has seen several million dollars in revenue since 1993, the five singers have collectively only received barely $300,000, which was about $12,000 per year per member. That is disgusting. Disgusting. Especially for everything that they did. And like mm -hmm. Nick being as young as he was, it's like child labor laws. Yeah. So Brian sues, he sued solo in May of 1998. And then finally the remaining four members of the band do join the suit during the discovery process of the lawsuit. So when they're gathering the documents to to present in court, Mm -hmm. it was learned that Lou famously was paying himself as the sixth member of the band. And this becomes like a legendary clause in almost every single one of actually, from what I understand, every single one of Lou's music contract contracts, he writes the contract as though he is one sixth member of the band. They call it the one sixth clause and it's in every single one of his contracts. Kevin Richardson tells Rolling (laughs) Stone, sorry. I love Kevin. (laughs) Kevin Richardson told Rolling Stone in 2000, quote, he totally deceived me. It's we're a family, we're a family. Then you find out it's about the money. It's about the money. It's about the money. End Mm -hmm. quote. Lou and the Backstreet Boys eventually reach a series of settlements, the details of which were never made public. Um, Basically, the way that it kind of is insinuated is that the band got the cash. They did pay out the one-sixth portion to Lou to basically not um, go against the contract that they signed. Mm -hmm. So they get the cash settlement. They paid out the one-sixth portion to Lou and completely received their freedom from him. So mm-hmm. it was that was the way that they were able to settle the contract. Lou, for his part though, lucky bastard that he is, was able to retain a portion of the Baxter Boys' future revenues in the form of royalties. Fucking 
fucking dick. Yeah. So in the wake of the lawsuit by the boys, Lou's other bands start to see behind the curtain. One Uh by one, they sue or disband. And despite their success in Europe and Asia, Take Five break up in 2001. Uh Um, After two top 10 singles, LFO also uh, breaks up. LFO. Mm -hmm. um and his second biggest loss came when nsync broke free uh the group members sued settled and broke all ties with perlman in 1999 Mm -hmm. so only a year after the boys did yeah because they were like well shit they Mm -hmm. had the right idea Mm -hmm. let's i mean we followed in their footsteps and you know became a boy band because the backstreet boys are the best so (laughs) obviously obviously we're gonna be like you know what we want to be even more like the backstreet boys because mm-hmm. they're really smart and we want to piece mm-hmm. the fuck out of this bitch. Oh, show. Mm-hmm. More lawsuits come uh, when the Backstreet Boys first managers, Jeannie Williams and Sybil Hall, also sue Lou, Lou Pearlman. Um, he winds up running up a $15 million uh, bill in legal fees with his lawyer, Jay Cheney Mason, who is notorious in Central Florida within his own right, having not only represented Lou, representing Lou Perlman, but he also represented Florida mafia boss named Harlan Blackburn and human garbage uh, receptacle Casey Anthony. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah. So he's a winner. These are the people that Lou Perlman are hiring are the mm-hmm. same people that Casey Anthony are hiring. So yeah. let's talk about the trash we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. But even with all the lawsuits and all the legal fees, Lou was still flush with cash. <laughs> Sorry. Little John, little John Raphael for yes. you. Okay. Yes. He was still flush with cash. Okay. <laughs> he, because he retained these royalty interests in not only the Backstreet Boys music, but also within sync. Mm-hmm as part of these settlements. And he used this lucrative income to buy a 12,000 square foot mansion in Windermere, Florida, along with, you ready for this? Two condos in, in Orlando, a waterfront condo in Clearwater, Florida, two mm-hmm. Las Vegas penthouses, a house in Hollywood, and an apartment in Manhattan. But like, why? And he also had two, at least two Rolls Royces. Oh my God, I can't. Like, you know what? I understand this has very, I, I understand you want a home and like, let's say a yeah. summer home. Cool. Yeah. But why, why, why? The only thing I can say is at least it's, it's kind of like laundering his fraudulent money because uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. figure real estate is a legit investment. Yeah. So you're taking this fraudulent, these fraudulent funds and you're purchasing this real estate that you can then turn into legitimate funds. Uh, that's true. I didn't. I didn't think about that. Now that makes you, know, all you gotta the think sense like a world. You gotta think like a fraudster. You know, you, you gotta know? get in the minds of these fuckers. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> and also on top of all of this, right up to on top of all of these lawsuits, Lou continued to sign new artists. Um, most notably is the fact that he started making the band, the reality show, and yep. signed O Town, and it's like you knew what was happening. You still signed a contract with this man and you watch the the interviews on Mm -hmm. the boy band con. And they're like, we knew, we just also knew he would make us stars. Yeah. Like it's just, it's crazy. He also signed Aaron Carter, which. Yeah. Well, that's a whole, that's a, that could be a whole other episode. (laughs) Exactly. But like the thing is with O-Town is yeah. Like they said, they knew they Mm -hmm. were just looking 
to at least get their foot in the door, at least uh-huh. get started. And then yeah. they were probably thinking, you know what? We'll just do the same thing that the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC did. And do so, and leave. Yeah. And right. And just peace <clears> out. And there was one person, now I can't remember his name and now I feel bad. He was in one of the other smaller, but he might've been in, was he in Take That? I don't remember. He was in one of the other bands. And when he first got his contract, of course, this is post in sync, post Backstreet, mm-hmm. post all of these lawsuits. He gets his contract, shows it to his manager and his manager goes, it's an awful contract, but it's a contract. Yeah. It's a crappy record deal, but it's a record deal. And record how often deal. those things come along, right? Yeah. So this is kind of what you're working with here. Yeah. It's kind of like that thing of you have to start somewhere. Correct. So you have it here in front of you. Just do it. Mm-hmm. Speaking yeah. of which, <laughs> in September of 20 of 2002, I almost said 2022. That's this year. That That's and this year. That's It's that's... now September of 2022. And that makes yes. no sense. In <laughs> September of 2002. So 20 years ago. Wow. I know. And it also seems so much longer ago than that. It does. It, it doesn't, does. it doesn't seem only 20 years ago. No. So anyway. No. In September of 2002, Lou purchases an internet-based talent company, Options Talent Group, which was formerly known as E-Model and Studio 58. The company goes through several more name changes, including, of course, Transcontinental Talent. Mm-hmm. Um, he also eventually calls it Web Style Network, Fashion Rock, Talent Rock. There's all these different names that it falls under. All these but different kinds of rocks. All these different types of rocks. But regardless <laughs> of the name... All of these, all of these businesses are an incarnation of a business model used by founder Eamon Difrawi, who himself is a convicted con artist. Who, <laughs> like, again, let's look at the people who are around this man and figure out all these terrible things he's doing. For real. Yeah. And Difrawi played a principal role in running Options Talent Group and all of the later businesses. Mm-hmm. The companies received tons of negative press coverage ranging from like the least bit of just being questions about the business practices yeah all the way up to outright declarations of them being a scam yeah now i'm gonna tell you guys now i'm gonna tell you guys a personal story (laughs) i'm gonna tell you guys a personal story before i continue the story so when i was in high school um i and still i i sing right i'm I'm a i'm a singer um and i enjoy singing yes and when i was in high school friends of mine and i would go to a local coffee shop on mondays and do karaoke and one monday night we were told by one of the servers the the bar at the coffee house that there was a talent scout at the coffee house and we were like fucking stoked we're like this is it this is our big break this is it we're all famous Mm -hmm, we're all famous mm -hmm. this is just happening we just know this is it so i get up there and i do like my best rendition of i want to love you forever by jessica simpson and i walk out of that coffee shop with a transcontinental talent business card from (laughs) the talent agent Mm -hmm. at the coffee shop so i got a business card and so did a male friend of mine because he was he was a dancer (laughs) so the two of us get a card we're so fucking excited that we now can go and audition and the whole thing was an opportunity to audition for transcontinental talent Mm we were so fucking stoked and again think of when we're talking about here we knew we knew what happened with lou perlman and still we were just like this is it man we're gonna be rich and famous this is when it's happening right now Anyway, so we go to this like empty store, like 
office building in Freehold, New Jersey. And they basically like rented out these office buildings and it was at like empty cubicles. And then like they had one room where you could sing. It was so, it was so shady. So fucking shady. That so should have been in, a red flag. That should have oh been a big old red flag. Seriously. Uh, what? So 2002, how old was it? 18, 18 year old mm-hmm. was like, oh no, this is happening. Mm-hmm. We're getting, we're getting rich. We're getting rich today. Right. So right. <clears throat> I got, weren't 2002. Is that when I turned 18? Yeah. No. We graduated high school in 01. Turned yeah. 18 and no one. I was 19. So 19 year olds like, this is happening. I'm getting rich like now. Right. Now, now, now skis. Right. So <clears throat> you go in, take pictures, right? They take a whole bunch of pictures of you. And then you get split into these different rooms, depending on what your talent is. So I went into like the singer room and I sang reflections by Christina Aguilera to this group <laughs> of people. And then my, the male friend went with like the dancers models. He went with them. Mm-hmm. And Two, three, four days later, I get a phone call at my house from some chick from Transcontinental Talent. Lou Perlman himself saw my video and he wants to sign me. He wants to make me a client of Transcontinental Talent and I'm going to be a star. Mm-hmm. All I need to do is give them $1,000. <laughs> <laughs> and this $1,000 is going to pay for headshots and the opportunity to be placed on their website. So talent like people who are trying to hire people for like commercials and shit yep. can go on this website and hire you from the website. So they like, don't do anything for you. They literally nope. like take headshots, put your ass on a website and hope for the best. But they're, but also too, this is basically him swindling more money from Correct. people that like a thousand bucks at a time. Yes. Yep. And exactly. that adds up. Oh that, yeah. That adds up. And it's yeah. just, it's a shame because yes he's taking advantage of these people whose dream Uh is to make it big to be an entertainer to be a pop singer to be a dancer like not caring how Mm -hmm. defeated and deflated they're gonna feel when it's like oh okay oh yeah thousand dollars for nothing (laughs) so i'm sitting on the phone with this lady and i put the phone on mute and i'm looking at my mom like i just need a thousand dollars i need a thousand my mom's like absolutely i think the (laughs) fuck not you're paying a thousand dollars right and I'm like, no, mom, this is my shot. Right. I was like, I was convinced <laughs> that this was it. So I get back on the phone. I'm like, my mom will give me the money. Right. Dramatic. I was so mad. And this woman's like, oh, hi, Mr. Perlman. Oh, Lou just walked by. He saw your picture on my screen. He knew I'm talking to you. He said, we got to make sure we sign that girl. Mm-hmm. Like the, the lies, mm-hmm. the lies and deceit were never ending. So finally my mom put the kibosh. I paid no money. Now my friend he sure did yep of course he did he paid the thousand bucks he got his butt on that website and as far as i know and can remember literally zero things happen with it i think you get put on the website for i wanted to say a year maybe it was like either a year to uh, it was a year to three years there was a time period that you're put on the website for and you either get picked or Or you you don't so and that's the end You're basically paying a thousand dollars to be entered into a raffle and you have like a one in million shot of Mm -hmm. anything. I wonder if anybody got called. I'm going to say probably not. You know, I don't know. And I will say, so one of the names that they operated under was called the Wilhelmina Talent Scouting. And now Wilhelmina Models Agency is a huge modeling agency in New York City. Mm -hmm. Wilhelmina Modeling Agency actually sued Lou Perlman shock for using their name because they said, obviously it's, um, 
you know, making it seem as though they're affiliated with right. this like reputable modeling agency. Right. And any of these large companies that they said that they were associated with, Wilhelmina Modeling, uh, Ford Models, all that stuff, all came out and said, we don't even know, we don't use their website. We don't wow. look at the models on their website. We don't see the models on their website. Now, I don't know if by some fucking chance, maybe one jabroni got picked out of a million to like go take a picture for a dog food commercial. Who fucking knows? But right. sure, as, sure as hell was my ass. I'll tell you that much right now. Yeah. Was it me singing reflections to a camcorder in a crappy uh, burnt out building in Freehold, New Jersey? <laughs> that's for damn sure. Yeah. <sighs> wow. So that's then- my that's my brush with transcontinental talent company that's crazy that's that's absolutely fucking crazy i remember mm-hmm. when that all first happened too oh, yeah, but man. like holy shit and yeah. i'm sorry now thinking about this in retrospect mm-hmm. the woman that called you she's kind of a skis too for like yep. playing into it so i actually read an article it was one of the tampa bay times articles or St. Pete times articles that's now tampa bay times where they interviewed people who worked for the agency and they're yeah. like oh no no it was it was dirty. Like you beg, barred and steal and, and you, they got commissions uh, off of whoever they signed. So of course they're, they're just trying to make their money. Yeah, I guess so. But, but I yeah, don't know. Shiesty. That is shiesty. shiesty. And like, I don't know about you. Like if I'm working somewhere and I don't agree with how things are handled, I'm like, agree. I don't care how good the money is. I can't do this I knowing agree. that this is fraud. Like that, this Agreed. is a joke. Agreed. Wow. Agreed. But there's a reason why Wells Fargo still has employees because <laughs> yeah. there are some people who don't give a fuck. Yeah, that's so. that's true. They're all about the money, money. Always. So there is your like firsthand insider knowledge into the shady business practices of transcontinental talent. Jesus. Yeah, it happened. So the Better Business Bureau apparently agreed with uh, Charlie over here, said that Transcon talent was negative, uh, citing a pattern of complaints concerning misrepresentation in selling practices. So, oh, look, Lou Perlman just walked by and he wants to sign you Uh is, you know, misrepresentation in selling practices. Right. The New York State Consumer Protection Board issued an alert, naming it the largest example they have found of a photo mill scam. Photo oh mill. boy let's put your photos on a website and see if anybody picks up uh-huh. uh san francisco labor commission declared transcon talent in violation of california law and several state agencies were reported to be investigating the company in florida around 2,000 complaints were filed with the then attorney general and the better business bureau um and an investigation was launched by assistant uh, um i'm sorry assistant attorney general uh, Dowd, but there wound up being like a change of the guard and a new appointed AG mm-hmm. uh, assistant AG came in mm-hmm. and he was unable to quote, find any substantial violations. Really? Oh, no, oh yeah. Money, oh, money, he was money, in money. on it. Yeah. He was in so, on it. So no charges were filed in Florida. And, uh, but on top of that, further complications or further complicating matters was the fact that the company had then declared bankruptcy. So now there's no money to get from them. So you could sue, sue, sue all you want, but they declare bankruptcy. So there's nothing to collect from. Right. You know? (sighs) All right. So even after all of these lawsuits and all the failings and all the business misrepresentation, Lou remained like the golden boy of Orlando, Florida. Of course he did. Of course. And he was given a key to the city and he (laughs) was named an honorary sheriff's deputy. 
Um, yeah. In 2003. So again, after all this shit, he used this like goodwill with the state uh, with the town to strike a deal with city council to assume control of the church street station complex which was this area where there was all these like run down historic buildings in downtown orlando mm-hmm. and he promised to refurbish the complex and create and bring in 500 new jobs <laughs> so he relo- relocates all of his business operations there and even though there's construction delays Eventually, there's several restaurants that open and stores open in the next couple of years, slowly bringing Church Street back to life. And it's actually beautiful over there now. So, I mean, I mean thanks, Lou Perlman. I get like you that did one good thing. You right? did. Well, yeah. besides putting together the Backstreet Boys, but like, well, yeah, it's true. I just I find it so crazy that still knowing everything that he's done and he's been sued for, you people still. Mm-hmm. Put him on a pedestal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It makes no sense to me. None. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. None. Now, here's my question. Here's my Mm -hmm. question. Do you think he would have gotten away with it in any other state besides Florida? Yeah. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Really? Because celebrity is celebrated. Yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. Because of the fact of what he, like who he is, the yeah. fact that he was, he was, he got to a point where he was now too famous for the, I mean, it wasn't until like, they were actually able to prove all of these awful things. Like yeah. j- basically up to this point, he was just a bad businessman. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you're right. You know, however, <sighs> this is when all the shit starts to really fucking hit the goddamn fan. So yes, the whole entire thing, all of the lies everything began to unravel in 2004 when a 17 uh, no when a 72 year old man named joseph chow uh passed away from pancreatic cancer now mr chow was lou's pretty much lou's dream investor over many 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 years um and he basically was like an unlimited source of money because he had complete and total faith in lou perlman mm-hmm. Quote, Poor bastard yeah Quote, from the very beginning, my mom was very skeptical of Lou Perlman, recalls the Chow's daughter, Jennifer. She didn't trust him. My parents argued about it quite a bit. She had me talk to my father a number of times to see if we could get money out or to slow it down. My father would get very defensive. He had, he just had so much confidence in Lou and everything he told him. He was always promising to expand the business, expand into, into TV, movies, recording studios, the charter airline business. He was always promising there would be an IPO. So the IPO is those public offerings where you would list that private company Mm, to the mm -hmm. stock exchange and get this influx of money. Mm -hmm. So he kept promising these people, we're going to do another IPO. You're going to get your money. We're going to do another IPO. You'll see. And all of this shit, right? Well, when Mr. Chow dies, his family now faced with all of these bills, right? Mounting Mm -hmm. his family approaches Lou about repaying the loans that he had gotten from Mr. Chow Mm -hmm. quote. He tells my uncle that he would think about it. And try to work out a payment plan, Jennifer <laughs> says. Yeah. <laughs> Quote, my uncle essentially responded, what's the situation with the IPO? Lou sounded skeptical. That's when Lou said to him, if anything, Joseph's investments are worth maybe 10 cents to the dollar. Stop it. Yeah. We were pretty stunned. Then Lou comes back and says he could repay $100,000 every quarter or so until the full $14 million was paid down. That wasn't really acceptable. End quote. No. Wow. 14 million. Yeah. 
in 100,000 quarterly payments. $100,000 no. quarterly no. payments. No. No. Nay, nay. Nay, nay, mm-hmm. I say. Mm-hmm. So when the Chow family hired a lawyer named Edwin Brooks, Lou sues them. <laughs> so Lou sues the Chow family in late 2004. And the whole, his lawsuit is all centering around what's called a forbearance letter. And basically what this letter was, in this case, was a one paragraph note that was signed by Joseph Chow saying that his loans could be forgiven if Lou didn't feel like paying. (gasps) So Brooks, the lawyer said, this letter makes no sense, right? Who would agree to forfeit $14 million in loans? Yeah. So he says, quote, what really got me late one night pouring over all these documents was that Joseph Chow's signature looked too familiar. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I started going through the notes my client had signed. And then I saw it. I grabbed one of the old letters with his signature, held it up to the light and compared it to the forbearance letter. The signatures were identical. Absolutely identical. (laughs) You lay them over the top of each other and it was only one signature. At that point, I realized I was looking at a forgery, end quote. What a fucking dick. And it would take another year to gather all of the original loan documents, hire a team of investigators and prove it. So Brooks, (laughs) this is ridiculous. So Brooks subpoenas the accounting firm that had certified his financial statements. So this firm was called Cohen and Siegel. It was based out of South Florida. And this firm, Cohen and Siegel, was the same firm that had been certifying his financial documents since like at least 1990. Oh, wow. So Brooks sends a process server to the headquarters to serve them the the paperwork to subpoena all Mm -hmm. the documents. He says, quote, the process server calls back and tells me there's no accounting firm at this address, just a secretarial service, <laughs> at which point, at which point I realized I was onto something. Mm-hmm. So Brooks deposes the woman who runs the secretarial service. And she said to him that Cohen and Siegel had no offices or employees that she knew of and that Perlman had paid her to take calls on the company's behalf. So when a call would come in, she would just forward it off to Lou Perlman himself. And he paid for the whole thing. He furnished the entire thing. Not long after this, Brooks stumbles upon the Cohen and Siegel website. And he claimed that it was like Lou Perlman claimed it was like some German accounting firm, but it was all fake. Like the website had like just been created. There was Mm -hmm. no contact information. They hired investigators to find this firm and it just didn't exist. Unbelievable. So now not only is, not only does the company exist only on paper, all of the financial statements that these people believed and saw were certified by a company that didn't exist. Mm. Nothing Mm. existed. It was all smoke and mirrors. Is, is, is this the part in the documentary when I started crying? Uh, very soon. Yes. Yes. It's not this next paragraph, probably the paragraph after. Yeah. 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 So all of the, these investments date back to the 1980s. So some people bought stock expecting to get in on the stock offering and, and earn dividends in the meantime. So this was kind of the case with Joseph Chow. Mm-hmm. He was looking to buy stock and then get these offerings as they do these public, you know, stock sales or whatever. Yeah. But most of Lou Perlman's investors thought they were getting an FDIC insured high yield savings account that would be a safe place for their retirement savings. He marketed it as an employee investment savings account that was available to the employees of Transcontinental Airlines, but he could also 
offer it to investors privately who were invited by Lou and his other agents. And as long as enough new money was coming in from these investors to pay off old investors, everything was working fine. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. But he now owed money to over 2000 investors, Ooh. primarily from Florida and New York. Some of these people were cousins, childhood friends, but most of them were perfect strangers who invested through his network of agents. And here we get to the part in the documentary where Jovi cried. I did. I did. <laughs> and this is truly, I mean, and this is truly the worst of all of his schemes. Yes, yes, it is. He and his agents would prey on elderly investors who would sign over their life savings for safekeeping and then would benefit from the monthly interest tra- checks that they would receive to supplement their income. And these checks did come for a while. Mm-hmm. He would gain their trust, take their money, and then he used the money to build successful pop acts. And then in turn, use the success of these pop acts as proof of the validity of the initial investment. So basically he built the Backstreet Boys. He built NSYNC. He built all of these multi-million dollar selling boy bands, pop stars mm-hmm. on the backs of stolen money. Yep. And then when they became successful, use the group's success to further expand the scheme and then prove to these elderly people. See, told you, look at how valid all of this was. Keep bringing me your money. Yeah. Fucker. He also used falsifies falsified FDIC. I, he also used falsified (laughs) FDIC, AIG and Lloyd's of London documents to gain the confidence of the investors of the employee investment savings account. But soon after the lawsuit involving the Chow family, the rest of Lou's investors stopped receiving their monthly interest checks. Mm-hmm. And that's when they were told there was nothing left. Nothing. In, nothing. Their nothing. entire life savings gone. was gone. And like in this in the documentary, they were interviewing this older couple. Mm-hmm. And I just I my heart broke for them. Yeah. It's imagine getting like all right, so you invested and you're getting these checks and everything's going great. And then all of a sudden you're told that everything you have is completely gone. gone mm-hmm. And you were unfortunately part of this scam. Mm-hmm. Like that's devastating. Yep. That's devastating. Yeah. The husband of the couple says, he's like, you know, you always hear about these horrible things and you're like, that could never happen to me. Like I would never, and he goes in and happened to us. Like you never think it's going to happen to you. And this was just too good to be true. And then one of the investigators that they interviewed, he was like, think of how all, like you've just stolen all the money from elderly people who can't earn any more money. Mm -hmm. Like they can't go out and get a job and earn this money back. Like that, Mm -hmm. that was it. That was it. You took what they had. They have nothing and they have no way to get it back right right what the fuck right so by 2006 the truth was out lou perlman had perpetrated the longest running ponzi scheme in american history and had defrauded investors out of more than one billion dollars of which 300 million dollars is still unaccounted for good lord people are convinced that he has buried money all over the world I mean, I wouldn't put it past him because he would just like leave the country for a couple of weeks and then come back. Yeah. 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 So for more than 20 years, Lou had convinced individual individuals and banks to invest in transcontinental airlines, transcontinental records, and the, both of those companies, parent company, transcontinental 
International Inc. Mm-hmm. Now, only Transcon Records was a legitimate money-making business, profiting from these signed pop acts. But as we know, like that winds up all come crumbling down because they sued him. Yep. <laughs> like it didn't last. Um, in mid-February 2007, the FBI raided Lou's Orlando mansion, removing cartons of documents, and they interviewed his assistant as well. At mm-hmm. the same time that this raid was happening at the mansion, an investigator named Jerry McHale gained access to Lou's office computers, and the enormity of the scheme was finally all unraveling. He was mm-hmm. finally able to see like just how fucking bad it was. Mm-hmm. Mikhail identified $317 million in missing money that was supposed to be in Transcon's employee investment savings accounts. So the accounts for the elderly people. Right. And he found, or he found evidence of the $156 million in vanished bank loans. Damn. Yeah. Mikhail seized and sold Lou's remaining real estate and his last functioning business, which was Talent Rock. (laughs) Um, And all of this sold for like pennies on the dollar. Next to nothing basically wound up just giving it away yeah uh, there was also this huge auction in orlando of like all of his memorabilia mm-hmm. which i mean i wish i would have known i totally would have went yeah <laughs> same Oops. like literally like same. a backstreet boys millennium platinum record yeah was sold like dumbass. like could you imagine having that nope. in your nope. living room being like look what i nope. have nope. especially it could be like the Backstreet Boys have the exact same one. I know. Oh, oh my, my God. God. That would have been imagine. so awesome. Damn it. It's not that far of a drive. No. I mean, and it wasn't that long ago. I should have went. I was here. <laughs> I was living down here by then. Idiot. I would have flew down here and went with you. <laughs> what a moron. Anyway, so what an idiot. So Mikhail received an anonymous tip that Lou was attempting to transfer $250,000 from an account at the Bank of New York, at the Bank of New York to where he was in Germany. But Mikhail managed to get the money frozen before it left the United States. Thank God. Yeah. By the time Mikhail finalized the investigation against Lou Perlman in April 2007, Lou had not been seen for six weeks. (laughs) So there were reports that he had been seen in Israel, in Belarus, and Brazil. But it wasn't until June 9th, 2007, when Thorsten Iborg, a 32-year-old computer programmer from Germany, checked into the five-star Western resort on the Indonesian island of Bali to vacation with his wife. So after a couple of days at the resort, Iborg noticed a man on the terrace who looked familiar. He was Mm -hmm. very pale. He was a chubby, chubby white man. Uh, You could tell he was an American man. He's like, he looks really familiar. Mm -hmm. Back in Germany, Iborg had seen a news story about everything going on. Right. And he was certain that the man sitting here in Bali was Lou Perlman. So later he finds himself sitting right next to him in the internet cafe at the hotel. And he's Mm -hmm. like, oh no. This, this is, is the guy. Mm-hmm. This is the guy. <laughs> so at breakfast on June 14th, Iborg was able to like secretly snap a photo of him and he uploaded the photo and emailed it to a woman named Helen Huntley, who was a reporter from the Tampa Bay area. She had written a number of articles. She was the one who wrote all of the St. Pete Times articles that I found. Tampa mm-hmm. Times. Uh, and she also had a blog about Lou Perlman and all of the complaints against him. So she was like the four, like the the leading expert yeah. on Lou Perlmanisms in the, in Florida. <laughs> right. So Huntley gets this uh, photo. He t- She turns everything over to the FBI. And there was agents at the American embassy in Jakarta who arrived at the Westin the next day and took Lou nice. in custody. Nice. Yeah. Nice. 
So he was registered at the hotel under an alias. Are you ready? A. Incognito Johnson. What an idiot. A. What an idiot. So, oh my God. I can't. What an idiot. I know. Um, so he had stamps in his passport showing he had spent time in Panama before he went to Bali. U.S. U.S. Marshals fly him to Guam and he stayed in a jail in Guam for nearly a month before they returned him back to Orlando in mid-July. They could have just fucking left him there. It was just like in Guam. It's mm-hmm. like rotten in a jail cell. And then they Bye. Him. Bye. So at the end of June, federal, pro- uh, this is 2007. At the end of June, federal prosecutors announced his indictment, um, which was on three counts of bank fraud and single counts of mail and wire fraud. Lou uh, pled guilty and uh, he wound up being sentenced to 25 years in prison. Mm-hmm. In a prison interview given in 2014, <laughs> Lou compared his Ponzi scheme to that of Bernie Madoff's. God. Mm-hmm. Quote, he didn't have any real way to make money, but I had the music. Backstreet Boys each made well over 50 million a piece. I, of course, got my piece, and it was very nice and very substantial. <laughs> he continues... <laughs> Yeah, he continues, quote, but he was just a scamster and I don't think it was right what he did. But okay. But I but I had my way to make it right. I just didn't have the chance to do it. Sure, 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 yes. sure, sure. Sure. Motherfucker. So he's basically he like is... Bernie Madoff. Now he's trash. Me, on the other hand, I just didn't have enough time for my Ponzi scheme to like come full circle. <laughs> So Buddy, that's you're your still bad. trash. That's no. your bad. You all would have gotten your money back if you would have just let me be. And yeah, made more okay. boy bands, you yep. fucking idiots. Yeah. Yep. Right. 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 Um, he ends the <laughs> he ends the interview saying that he's feeling okay. Quote, I'm feeling good. I'm okay. Um, he says at the time he had 15. So at the time, he had 15 years left in his sentence, and he stated that he intended to find the next Justin Timberlake once he is released, which <laughs> I mean, God save us. Yeah, let's um, not. Yeah, for real. When asked what he hope, <laughs> when asked what he hopes to relate to the world outside, Lou says, "Quote, you know that I deeply re- regret what happened, and I'll be back." End quote. <laughs> well, Lou that died in happen. custody. Yep. <laughs> well, Lou died in custody at the Federal Correction Institution in Miami, Florida, on August nineteenth, two thousand sixteen. Yeah, it's like two days after my birthday. Like, happy birthday, happy Charlie. birthday, BT Dubs, <laughs> Lou Broman. <laughs> um so he passed away of cardiac arrest he's buried 10 days later on august 29th 2016 at a fam a family burial plot he was 62 years old at the time of his passing um and if I, he would if he was still alive he would be getting out in like in 2029 i think it would have been wow like mm-hmm. i'm sorry if i was his family i've been like yeah you could bury him in the middle of nowhere for all yeah. we care because he has done nothing but brought shame to this name shame shame on our house exactly so yeah lou perlman that's the story he's a fucking winner crazy you know what's really funny is like okay obviously watching the documentary like you know all the thing whatever but when you like lay it out and just go year by year by year and stack up all of these schemes and just like he started the first scheme when he was only like 32 years old Mm -hmm. so for pretty much his entire like adult life he was just scamming people out of their money yeah that was his profession and And i didn't even get into i didn't even touch on the allegations of sexual abuse oh yeah oh you really didn't 
You did I didn't not. even touch on it. I didn't even talk about it. Nope. But apparently multiple, multiple, including Rich Cronin from LFO and mm-hmm. Ashley Parker Angel from Motown, mm-hmm. mo- multiple of the boy band members ha- had uh, come forward and said that Lou was incredibly sexually inappropriate with them. Yep. Mo- yep. In most of the interviews that I was reading in the, the articles that I found, nobody ever came right out and said that he like raped them or molested them or there was never any discussion about like an outright assault mm-hmm. but he was definitely like a fucking sexual predator yeah it and was in the like it was in the Backstreet Boys. yeah he was in, it was in the Backstreet boys documentary that they showed them porn when they were underage yep i mean he was just he was incredibly inappropriate yeah um one of the girls from innocence who's uh interviewed nikki deloach she's interviewed in the youtube documentary he had a tanning bed on the property and he had a camera in the room so he would videotape yep. the girls getting undressed going in the tanning bath and then show it to all show it to all the boy band members because he was like cool like yep. it's just yep. so well yeah maybe he didn't outright sexually assault any of these boys boys he violated them he violated them and was a sexual predator and i like big time he's fucking trash yeah unless unless you ask, ask aaron carter because he will vehemently deny it well <laughs> Yes. I would recommend watching the YouTube original Boy Band Con. Yes. If for no other reason (laughs) than to watch the clips of Aaron Carter's interview because they're 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 trained they're they're bad. Like they're bad. (laughs) I wish, I wish, I wish he was better. It's so sad to me. Me too. So sad to me. Me too. Mm. God damn. Damn. Wow. Yeah. Fucking Lou Perlman. Perlman. Lou Perlman. Fucking Lou Perlman. Like honestly. If it and like, look, I realize that if it wasn't for him, we wouldn't have the Backstreet Boys. Correct. Like we would have maybe them as solo artists. Like I could see some of them becoming big on their own. However, mm-hmm. the only thing that like I, don't, I hate to even say this like i hate to say that i'm grateful to him for because mm-hmm. whatever but i'm grateful that he had the idea to do this yeah so that the Backstreet yeah. boys came into our lives i really think that had he not put together the band i think the only two you ever would have known who they were were aj and nick because yeah. they were already on the path. AJ was already doing shit. Well, and maybe Howie too. But AJ was already doing stuff. He was already performing. He was already looking for his shot. Nick yeah. was already auditioning for Mickey Mouse Club. I think you would have seen from those two. I don't know if you would have seen the rest of them. No. I mean, I have a feeling. Maybe Brian with like a Christian gospel. music. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, w- we wouldn't know. No, we wouldn't know. Mm-mm. Gospel music. I'd be like, oh, hey, he's hot. But that's like, all. Hey, that's the guy with the nostrils, right? <laughs> <laughs> leave his nostrils alone leave his not his gigantically <laughs> squared head all right funny funny story about about well it's gonna be hard to demonstrate when you can't see me but brian's my favorite backstreet boy and mm-hmm. he does have very flary nostrils very um, flary. if you don't know who he is google him mm-hmm. he's a very handsome man with a square jaw line that is to mm-hmm. die for you could literally cut class with his like jaw. literally it's beautiful it's a anyway. it's a 90 degree angle on either side of his face <laughs> yes and especially yeah. when he has that scruff going okay we're mm-hmm. not gonna we're not gonna get into that conversation anyhow but anyway anyhow. yeah he, he has flary nostrils uh-huh. so my cousin 
would always tease me and he would walk over to me and like put flare his nostrils out and like hold out his nose and be like he would say some kind of like something he'd be like oh i'm brian for the backstreet boys and i'm like you're fucking you're, dumb you're dumb you're dumb and you're i know dumb. charlie has witnessed this so i have i have he's, uh yeah but brian. he's a special breed mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. boo perlman oh i'm so excited i want to try and convince my sister so my sister <laughs> back in the heyday of the of the boy bands mm-hmm. uh, my sister went to the uh, menlo park mall mm-hmm I think it was Menlo Park Mall in New Jersey because one, I think it was Youngstown. I think it was Youngstown. I don't remember. It was one of those like random boy bands. I think it was Youngstown. Yeah. I remember her telling the story. Yeah. yeah. Was performing at the mall. So she went with her friend. They were outside like in line and Lou Perlman walked past her and she has a picture. It's my favorite thing in the world. He's behind her on the phone, like not even looking at her. And she's standing in front of him with her hand out. Like, yeah, like like, like saying hi. It's the funniest thing. She's like so excited. She's standing in front of Lou Perlman and he's like behind her on the phone. She had that picture framed on her nightstand in her bedroom the entire time until we moved to Florida. And I think it was more because of like the humor. Of, it wasn't because like, oh my God, Lou Perlman, he's so great. It was because yeah. of the humor of it of like, wow, <laughs> this is what happened. So yeah. Oh my God. I remember. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Good time. I remember seeing that picture. Good picture. It's classic. Oh, it's a classic, uh, classic picture from our childhood. Yes. Yes. That and the photograph of my mom sitting on Joey Fatone's dad's lap. Yeah. 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 Weird. That was a weird memory. <laughs> weird weird memory <laughs> thanks those are i'm gonna write that down it's the next thing i want to talk about in therapy yeah i don't think i've brought i don't think i've brought that up yet <laughs> that that is definitely something definitely oh, something it was something it definitely mm-hmm. was something yeah. mm-hmm. all right well uh, that's my story and uh, i'm sticking to it so that's uh the saga of Lou Perlman. thank you charlie Mm -hmm. for telling that story and you are absolutely correct i was so excited that you decided to do the trash bags story with that being said well actually before i do the outro please 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 watch boy band con on youtube it's so good it really is even if you weren't a boy band fan even Mm -hmm. if like it wasn't your thing it is just such a good documentary Mm -hmm. it it kind of opens your eyes to what these what they went through and who knows there could be another Lou Perlman out there that we don't know of we don't know yet so just yeah for sure and may also recommend watching the Backstreet Boys documentary show what you're Mm, made of mm -hmm. because even if you are not a Backstreet Boys fan while the boy band con goes into it's specifically about Lou Perlman and uh like and it goes beyond the boy band stuff it like talks about more like the Ponzi scheme shit as well Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The Baxter Boys documentary, Show Them What You're Made Of, talks, it's really very personal to them about what they went through. And it's uh, definitely a very interesting glimpse into how how they dealt with everything and what, what happened to them. So it really is. And it's also a really great documentary. And you get to see Nick Carter and Brian Littrell in a screaming match. And it's just pure entertainment. It's wonderful. And Kevin Richardson laughing at them. Yes, it's wonderful. It's Honestly, Kevin Richardson <sighs> is the best Backstreet Boy. Like, um, if, Charlie if you, agrees. <laughs> if you could get, if you could get Kevin angry, you're a bad person yeah. because this man has the patience, patience of, of a, a saint. saint. 
Yeah. Like he put up with a lot of shit. So when he eventually freaked out on AJ, okay, just, okay. Just go love Kevin Richardson. If you don't take anything away from that, uh, from show me what you're made of besides loving Kevin Richardson, that's good. That's fine. Yeah. Though I will fight you because I love him more. (laughs) (laughs) Charlie will fight you because I love him more. Yes, she does. Yes. But he is, he's a wonderful, wonderful man. Wonderful man. man. Yeah. Okay. All right. Go ahead. You can do <laughs> We could talk about the Backstreet Boys all day. Maybe we yep. should do an episode where we talk about the Backstreet Boys all day. Sure. Why, Why not? not? It's a very special episode <laughs> about the Backstreet Boys. What's the crime? How much we love the Backstreet yeah. Boys. That's the crime. How much money I've spent. How much money I've spent on the Backstreet Boys. That's the crime. <laughs> no. Or they said they never break our hearts. And guess what? They did. They did. I don't know how, but sure. they did. They did. Well, Kevin broke my heart when he left the band. Yeah, that's true. Well, he didn't technically back. leave. And then he mended, mended it. <laughs> now he it's just, better. He took a leave of absence for he his did. family. Which and I, guess that's I could respect that. Yeah, I guess it's fine. <laughs> anyway, before <laughs> Charlie goes and goes on a, a rage about that. Yes. Yeah. If you know of other trash bags like Lou Pearlman <laughs> and, and you want us to exploit them on our podcast um, you could send your suggestion to bedcrimestories at gmail.com no you can't it's bedcrimestoriespod at gmail.com <laughs> don't send it to the first one send it to the second one i swear to god <laughs> every time <laughs> you think i know by now okay so send it to bedcrimestoriespod at gmail.com and you could slide into our dms on instagram bed crime stories yes and and twitter but yeah don't do that just but stick not with twitter. Instagram. twitter but not twitter twitter but not twitter please like rate review subscribe uh-huh. tell a friend uh-huh you tell your friends how awesome we are because we are we are tell your friends how awesome the Backstreet boys are yes they are. yes because mm-hmm. you know what you're gonna be like the Backstreet boys are awesome charlie and jovi think the Backstreet boys are awesome and guess what then we'll become best friends all of us it's like the transitive property. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. If exactly. Jovi and Charlie think the Backstreet Boys are awesome and you think the Backstreet Boys are awesome, then you'll think we're awesome. Exactly. Math. Math. This is why we don't leave the house. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> even to see each other. That's why we Zoom now because we can't even be in the same room. Because nothing gets done. Be kind to one another. Yes. You don't show know what, what you're made of. Ex- <laughs> and and yes, exactly. Show them what you're made of. Show, show them the kindness you're made of. Yeah. Huh. And don't forget what makes you different makes you beautiful. <laughs> oh, these oh. are just some life lessons that you can learn from Backstreet Boys. By the yes. Way. Yes, it is. You never know what somebody's going through. They could mm-hmm. just need a kind word or mm-hmm. a duck on their Jeep to make their day. So oh, yeah, just be, just be nice. Be cool. Mm-hmm. Be cool. Just be cool, man. Just be cool. Don't be like Lou Perlman. Don't steal people's money. Don't, don't steal Stop the it. poor old people's money. Like, oh, real. That's just, uh, okay. Moving on, moving on. Mm-hmm. Thank you guys as always for listening mm-hmm. and dealing with our banter and ridiculousness. We do love you. We mm-hmm. appreciate every single one of you. Mm-hmm. Next week is a very special episode. It is our 100th episode and we're super excited about it. 
Yes, it is. Yeah, you better you better put on your true crime seatbelts because it's gonna be a it's gonna, it's be, gonna a rocky be a one. Bobby Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> Again, another reason why we don't leave the house. Have a good rest of your day, night, whatever time it may be where you're listening. Mm-hmm. We'll see you all next week. Mm-hmm. But until then, sweet, sweet dreams. dreams are made of these. <laughs> Dumb. <laughs>